welcome to the Six Hats podcast, where I, Dr. Shami, a lifestyle and nutritional medicine family doctor, will talk about how women strive to find balance each day by juggling their six roles, being a woman, mother, daughter, partner, business owner, and professional. Hi, Sue. So excited to have you on today's podcast. Sue is a wonderful counselor and hypnotherapist, and she's been working with me for the last couple of years, and it's been an absolute pleasure working alongside you, Sue. Thank you so much, Shami. That's lovely to hear, and it's been a delight working with your team too because it's just such a wonderful team, so dedicated. So it's been an absolute pleasure. Amazing. So for our audience, just wanted to introduce Sue. She specializes in emotionally focused therapy, does couples counseling, gut directed hypnotherapy, hypnotherapy for emotional eating, which is called hypnotic gastric banding, and of course, counseling. So Sue, we would love to start and learn more about emotionally focused therapy. What does it actually mean? Good question. So with couples therapy for many years we've been going along the track of let's just listen to each other more and let's understand each other's point of view but it's all been very cognitive and when emotionally focused therapy came up i did a workshop and went wow this is the missing link because people know that they shouldn't yell at their partner they know that they should do certain things but there's so much more depth to relationship than just that cognitive thing because cognitive is part of our information but if we go down deeper into our experience in lives we realize that there's a lot of emotion there you don't yell at your partner because you think it's a good idea. You do it because you're emotionally frustrated or dysregulated. And so that emotional part is what we've been missing. We haven't been addressing that. And so it's just a fascinating journey, learning the emotional focus therapy. It's very rich, but it's so beautiful. And it's made such a difference to my practice with working with couples. It's just worlds away. I feel so tooled up now I feel so much more like I can meet their emotional needs because ultimately isn't that what we all want we want to feel like we're in love we want to feel that joy and that honey when we see our partners that's what we're all looking for amazing so Sue can you give us some examples of stories of how a couple first comes to see you and and I laugh because we all often talk about how you know we moan about oh you haven't done the dishes or you haven't taken the rubbish out and couples tend to fight about certain behaviors but actually deep down there's actually an emotional reason for that but we end up talking about just that task or just that behavior and you always say when you go deeper I want to be appreciated or I want to be validated and there's an emotion behind why we end up sort of nagging or not yelling but nagging or arguing mm. and I'd love to have you got any stories to share how when a couple first comes in how they often say this is the problem when actually fact it's not the exact right. problem yeah. And that's a really good point there that you're making between the difference between what's happening emotionally and what's happening cognitively, because we're meaning making machines. So we're always trying to make sense of our emotions and experience. And it's clear to me that if uh, my partner has neglected to do the dishes for the next time or, you know, whatever, then it's an emotional thing for me that comes up. Right. It's so interesting that uh, people come in and they say, you know, 
if he would just do the dishes like I said, then we wouldn't be here. We wouldn't be having these problems, right? But there's something happening there for the partner where that's getting tricky too, right? So there's something happening there. So we need to work out what's happening there. And, you know, maybe he, for example, in this story, would come up with all sorts of excuses. I'm tired, blah, 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 whatever, right? But it doesn't solve the problem. But if I can slow people down, and there's two fairly distinct styles, which it might be good to just tip into and check with that too. But if we can just slow down that dynamic and say, okay, but what happens? What comes alive for you? What do you feel in those moments? Then we get a different story. So for her, it might be that how she feels in her heart and her body, how she feels emotionally is this is where she feels like she has to do it all alone. And when that happens, she doesn't feel valued. So really what she's actually saying is, honey, I'm missing your support here. I really need some help. It means so much to me. It feels like you then, you've got my back. And that may go back to, you know, childhood traumas, or it may be just that thing in those moments. And for him in that story, it may be, it's the way she's asking. Maybe it's like, I come in the door and my brain hasn't even had time to settle yet. And you've got orders for me. And I remember my mum barking orders at me and how, or how she used to do it to dad, right? And so there's like, I'm not going there. So there's a resistance, there's a block. But if we can get him to drop down into that emotion and talk about how it feels for him, it's the way you're saying that. When you say it that way, it comes across as an order. And I don't want to be ordered around. I want to be your partner here. I want a relationship that's most connected. Yeah. I'm really curious, Sue, not many of us can actually express ourselves with our emotions and many Mm. are very much in our head and perhaps women are much more capable of showing, you know, expressing the emotions rather than men. So how do you actually entice that situation out of a couple? Like who do you start with and what happens if they don't know how to express themselves? That's a really beautiful question and it's a very important one. And that goes back to what I mentioned before about the the two basic different styles is we either pursue when our stress levels go up, we either lean in and we pursue and we start asking a lot of questions, start pulling at people, you know, our tempo can go up and get faster, we'll get a bit higher, right? And that's that pursuing type style or we can withdraw. So we may shut down, go quieter, go calmer, get distracted, minimize, and we sort of move away from the emotion, right? So both those styles are valid and we need defenses in life. So they're valid. It's just we and where they're used. So if they're present in relationships, they're often what's blocking that flow of loving energy that comes through, right? If the pursuer can just take a breath, do a little bit of emotional regulation, not always easy to do, but practice that and give a bit of space for their partner, then often the partners have a little more safety around that emotional arena and they can come more present. So for the people who withdraw, and it is often males because we've culturally taught men not to go to the softer emotions and to toughen up. So they often go into fix it, right? But what we want is them to not go into fix it. We want them to stay in that emotional presence and go, what's happening for me? But like you said, if you've never been taught that or if you've been taught that's culturally wrong, to go into the emotions and sometimes those withdrawals are females but for whatever reason they're there it's one they've had little practice of being in that arena and two they've learned that it's dangerous right so we're talking about emotional expression here and to do that you first of all have to check in emotionally what's happening with yourself 
right? And that's a thing that a lot of people, particularly with drawers, are not used to. They're more used to avoiding ducking and getting out. Yeah, let's not go there. And it's sort of like if I'm one of the most least sporty person on the planet. So if you said to me, would you like to play tennis, Susan? I might go, okay, I know I hold a racket, but I wouldn't feel confident, right? <laughs> you might be whacking balls around the court and I'd be just, I have no idea what I'm doing here. It's an unknown quantity to me and I haven't got that expertise. I haven't got that practice and I haven't got a success ratio of hitting that ball back, right? So if you're a withdrawn sort of person and you're not in touch with your emotions, it's a tough hill to climb, right? So they need safety and that often comes like the people around them slowing down their speech, becoming calmer, a little softer, right? That gives you more safety than anything else, right? So that helps. But having said that, that alone won't ensure that a withdrawal will turn up, right? Because they don't even know what they're looking for. So with therapy, what I'm doing is I do a little emotional regulation when they first come in. And so I get the story and I get where they're going in their cycle and what their management styles are. And then I'm looking for working with the withdrawal more so that I can help them to get in touch. And for that, I'm saying, what happening right here and now? What's happening right here, right now? What do you feel there? And they often go, nothing. So this is about becoming present with yourself. This is sacred work, right? So come present with yourself. Can we just hang around there and we just stay soft? And we just, can we give it some space and some time here? And what do you feel in your body? And sometimes people will still say nothing, but our body is talking to us all the time. Our emotions are always present. Emily Nagoski says that our emotional beings think occasionally. I love that. <laughs> yes. Yeah, yeah. And so the visual I give myself is I imagine that the emotions are like an ocean and the thoughts are like rafts sitting on the top floating around. Because if I stop you any time of the day or night, there will be, if you can check in, there'll be an emotion there, even if it's I'm feeling just calm and peaceful. So let's go to the withdrawal. And first of all, how do you know if you're a pursuer or a withdrawer? I know you mentioned most women are pursuers and I'm laughing because I am. I'm the pursuer. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, my partner is the withdrawer. I have to say yeah. that. So, yeah. But how do you know? How can you tell? Right. That's a good question. So pursuers looking for the emotion. So when there is a danger cue in the relationship, Okay, so the danger cue can be very, very tiny, but our brains are designed to always be looking for danger cues in important relationships, right? So it may be, I'll make up a little story, right? So I'm a pursuer and my husband comes home and I say, hi, honey, how are you? And he goes, fine, right? Now that could be a danger cue to me because I'm a pursuer. I'm looking to connect. I'm looking to touch emotions, right? And as I'm looking for that emotion, my, I don't feel it. My brain goes, uh-oh. So a pursuer brain goes, uh-oh, you better fix that. You better move in. You better lean into that. So I lean in and I say, what do you mean? Yeah, there's nothing wrong. And you go, there's nothing wrong. I told you, all right, I'm fine. Just leave me alone. What do you mean leave me alone? I'm just asking you a simple question. Always with the questions. Fine. And then, you know, he stomps off and, and yeah. And so and in that little story there, him as a withdrawer, his emotion is not where he readily goes. And that he may have come home for all we know with going, oh, what a day. Walked in the door and the first thing he gets is this bubbly, bouncy, hi, how you doing? And he's going, oh, no, it's going to be too much. Yeah. So he does, he minimizes, right? He drops his tempo. And that's what often withdrawers do. They minimize or they become less present. So they get there's less words there and or they avoid. 
they avoid the issue mm -hmm. by changing the subject, right? So as he drops, the more I ante up and the more he drops, the more I ante up so it can mm -hmm. escalate to a point. And it's a misattunement, right? And, you know, at work, I mean, you'd sort of hope that my partner in that story can come in and say, oh, look, honey, just hold it for a minute. I've had this big day. I just need to go out and dig the garden for 10 minutes. Yeah. You know, I'll come back and then we can talk. And as the pursuing partner, I go, okay, I don't have to go into like 50 questions, right? Which pursuers do. Yeah. <laughs> they often <Right>. yeah. <laughs> withdraws often say, I get interrogated. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So instead of going, what do you mean you have to dig the garden? What do you mean you wait? Why didn't you want to be here? <laughs> right? yeah. I can go, okay, this is the point in our relationship where we end up going out of attunement with each other. So I know that this is where you need a bit of space and I can hold myself as long as I do know you're going to come back to it. Does that make sense? Does that answer your question? Absolutely. And I can just think of so many scenarios where it can help our audience. Because how mm -hmm. often does that happen? Because we're sort of seeking, in a way we're seeking, is it safety or we're seeking some kind of reassurance that this relationship is fine, we're happy yes. when the pursuer keeps pursuing and interrogating it? Would that be a reason why would they do that? You're spot on. Because these relationships are so important, we're looking to see if there's a breach in the relationship. It's a danger cue from an evolutionary point of view. If we're not safe and secure in the pack, we're in trouble. We're going to not be able to successfully source food and we won't be safe. Not as many eyes looking for us. So we're designed to go, oh, there's a problem. So we both the withdrawer and the pursuer are trying to create safety in the relationship, but the pursuer is going the other way to do is to talk about it more and come closer and let's just sort it out yes and the withdrawal is going oh no i remember my last relationship it all went to crap when we had these sorts of talks i don't want that to happen with us so i'm going to minimize it i'm going to shut that window and i'm going to avoid it so we're all looking for safety and this is the beautiful thing when you go into people's emotions behind those behaviors they will come up with that information they'll say yeah i don't want to go into for a lot of withdrawals it's i'm scared that if i start talking about those emotions it will get out of control maybe i'll say something and it'll ruin it forever right Right. And so they're protecting the relationship and the pursuer is going, but I'm locked out in the cold. I can't feel you. I can't feel where you are emotionally. And that dysregulates me. Makes and so I'm trying to calm my nervous system by getting you to come closer. Makes sense. To the therapy session and you've got a withdrawal. He's never really expressed his emotions. How do you start do they know what kind of emotions they're feeling? Like what you said, they often go, don't know, not feeling anything. <laughs> yes, and it's really where as a therapist, I have to lean in and use all my skills. There's some really fantastic male therapists who are working with the emotionally focused therapy who have really helped me understand more of that cultural thing about our men not being allowed to show emotions. And it becomes such a strong pattern in their brain that we don't go to emotion, we don't go to emotion, that they they literally, I mean, they're telling the truth and they go, I don't know, I don't feel anything. So we have to first of all recognize and honor that and put some psychoeducation around that, which says, yeah, that makes sense. Well, how would you know when we've had a culture that's been, you know, told men don't show emotions? Often it's been modeled by dad and and even jobs like for engineers, they go straight to fix it every time. And that's good at the right time, but we want emotion. 
people who are soldiers, people who are data analysts. There's a lot of jobs where we designed lawyers, right? Where we designed, and that happens for male and female too, of course, right? We're taught and educated not to get to those emotions. So it really is about honor and respecting where they come from, recognizing there's good reason for this, and this is not faulty, but also helping them to understand that there absolutely is emotion there. Because there's very few people who actually get married or get into a long-term relationship these days without there being emotion. So true. Yeah, we do it because of love. We do it because there's some yearning in us. We're yearning for that connection. That bond is so powerful and it's so natural and normal that when it's disrupted anyway, it causes us distress. And withdrawers manage their distress by shutting it down and distracting. I'll watch the footy. I'll go and, you know, chat to my friends about all everything else. Or for a pursuer, it's, well, I need to come closer to you and we'll sort that out. And I think you gave some beautiful advice already in one of the examples for the pursuer is to take a deep breath, hold that space. And it is about looking at yourself because we often laugh because, you know, when people go into couples therapies, they often say, how do you fix my partner? (laughs) (laughs) And wouldn't that be so easy? (laughs) I'm not the issue. Can you just fix him or can you just fix her? We often hear that. So you gave some really good advice that we actually have to look at ourselves in this relationship. We're responsible for that emotion. So what can we do as a pursuer to make that conversation easier when we're feeling unsafe or when we're feeling we're not heard? Okay, good questions. And there are certainly things we can do because it is about creating safety. So like I said, low and slow, gentle voice, giving space. And remember, if this is me hopping on the tennis course for the first time, I'm going to react slowly. I'm going to be a bit lost right? So they need space. You need to accept that they're going to need space to think about what you're saying and process it. It's going to not work as quick for them. Those brain waves, those neural pathways are not as clearly used. And so therefore they're not as easy to access, right? So low and slow is really important. And even things like letting them know it's not going to go on because withdrawers just assume that, oh, it's going to go on for hours. So even like, can we spend 20 minutes? Can we talk about this for 20 minutes, right? Yeah. So that gives them a bit of relief in the way, oh, this isn't forever. Okay. All right. Okay. Yeah. So they're more likely to be present. And what else is that? Yeah. So it's also this being super careful not to come across in a blaming way. It's really easy to say when you did this and you did that and come up with a laundry list of all the things. And here's all the examples of how you let me. (laughs) And they're going on trial, isn't it? Here's all the evidence. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. And these are the numerous times. So while as a pursuing brain wants to do that, because they're going, I want you to help me with this pain, this pain, this pain, this pain, this pain, right? This is about meeting the needs of both partners, right? So back to your question, being very careful with your language so it doesn't come across as blaming, not giving, you know, a huge list of all the things where they've done their misdemeanors, right? So just picking one specifically and saying people need context. So they need to know it's like when I found your socks on the floor the other day, right? But then you want to go back to your experience, 
If you go on the line of saying, well, you left your socks on the floor and you don't respect me, et cetera, et cetera, it's going to be very hard for them to stay present. Well, as if we go to our experience, if we give the context, I found the socks on the floor or your socks were on the floor the other day and next to the laundry basket, then if we go to our experience and then it's far softer because it's about what's happening in you. For me, I just felt that, oh, it's so disappointing. We talked about this and it's still there. And I don't know why you can't hear me. Why can't you hear me here? That's what comes up in my mind. But I want to know what's happening for you because this doesn't feel good when I'm not feeling heard. It pushes me away and I don't want that. I want to be closer to you. I love that. So sticking with your own internal experience and expressing how that feels. So it's more of an I message than a you message. Give the context but going to how it affects you. How does it feel and, for you? Got it. Yeah. yeah. Having said that, you can do everything right. Not that everyone ever does. We're all human. But you can do everything right as a pursuer. And withdrawers sometimes will lean in. But if they don't know that it's safe to do it, if you haven't had a conversation around that, then they're going to go, okay, that's better, but probably not step in, right? Because we want pursuers not to lean in quite so much in the relationship. So they lean out, just stand up straight. And then we want the, the withdrawals to lean in a little, Got right? It. And so for that, I think you need to have either a therapist help guide you, which is greatly valuable, or even reading a book like Hold Me Tight by Susan Johnson, right? And, you know, prioritizing your relationship and saying, can we read a bit of this book? It's a very lightly written book, so it's not difficult to read. But can we read either separately and then discuss, or can we read a bit together and talk about it? Because it gives some framework around it for drawers to understand the dynamics of what's going on. And it's not you telling them how to do the relationship, which is a little off-putting. And going back to having those beautiful conversations, I think also it's like learning a new language because actually quite foreign to say this is how I feel and I want to be heard I really don't feel we're taught to express ourselves in that way for various reasons because that's not what we hear or see when we're growing up or you know what our role models so we're learning this new language which I think is so valuable on so many levels but when's the right time do you think it's best to like schedule a time in for these kind of conversations rather than when someone's just come back from work and exhausted and had a bad day What's your advice on that? Oh, absolutely. I, I think you make two good points there is do we make it a time? And I think that's a great idea. I'm going to go into that. But also what you said that about the language, it is we are learning a new language because we've now got attachment science and so much research behind this, which shows how important it is to change our language. And you're right, we haven't learned. Sue Johnson actually says, as a therapist, you think you're being empathetic. She says, check again, learn some EFT and then check again. And she's right. This language is so soft. Mm -hmm. And ultimately, we all want that. We want that soft, safe. I love you, honey. You're my sweetness. I love being with you. We want that honey. Our hearts yearn for it. So the language we need as pursuers, we need to soften it, not be so sharp. Right. And as withdrawers, we need to learn to how to communicate with confidence right? So that was the language. And the other thing you said about making a time, I think that's a fantastic idea. It so intrigues me that as, you know, in a business, you wouldn't have a business meeting without a follow-up meeting. That's true. <laughs> yes. 
And yet our relationships are the most important thing and the biggest thing that provide us with happiness. And yet we bumble our way through it because that's what we've been taught. But now we have so much science out there, so much wonderful information that setting a time is a really good plan. I've got a couple that I worked with for a while and they do it. They have a catch up time and it's been interesting. Start off a little bit rocky for them, but they've actually made it work for themselves. They've got a few set questions they ask each other, which are along the lines of, you know, how's your week been? What do you want me to be aware of? What would you like me to know about your experience this week? What have you loved about what I've done? Yeah, they're beautiful things. Yeah. And that's working really well for them because they're busy people. And the other beautiful thing that is, is that it's pursuers who tend to take the responsibility of the relationship. So we want withdrawers to pick up more and take more ownership in it. And with this, they've done week about where they share the responsibility. It's your turn to make sure the meeting happens. It's your turn to make sure the coffee's there this morning. Wow. Can you repeat those couple of questions? I think they're so valuable. Okay. What were they? Yeah, because they're emotional questions, right? And that's what we ultimately, and we need context, but we also want the emotion. So what's happened for you this week? What's been important for you this week? What have I done that you've enjoyed this week? What's challenged you this week? Those sorts of questions, yeah? And this is the thing that I love about the emotionally focused therapy is the more you understand a people's emotional world, the more you can texturize more to them and the more you seem seen and heard. And when you feel seen and heard like that, it's exactly, it, this is what soothes our whole nervous system because the most dangerous thing for a mammal is to not be seen, not be heard, right? Because how are you going to come if I need you? How will I know you'll hear me call? Will you see me? Will you keep an eye out for me? I mean, just think of a two-year-old and how much, you know, like even if you're not talking to the two-year-old all the time, you've got an eye out. You've got one eye on the kid right? And you've got one ear out for the kid, right? And that's what makes it safe for that child to play in a relaxed way. You notice children who don't have that secure connection, and they tend to be the ones who don't play as much. They don't tend to show emotion as much. So they might look quieter and well-behaved, but that's because there is a, there's a little bit of anxiety. I'm not feeling too safe and too secure here. If you know someone's keeping an eye on you, you can go, okay, I can play, I can experiment, I can enjoy life, I can love the beauty of life because someone else has got an invisible boundary around me, a buffer zone. That means I will stay safe. So while as we're not children anymore, we still need that. Someone's got eyes on me. Someone's there. If I call, you need to have someone in your life who will respond. And sometimes that's a partner. Sometimes it's a friend. Sometimes it's a parent. Sometimes it's a, another form of relationship, but we need someone who sees that and will respond to us. I think some really wise words, and it's made me really reflect on today's community. We've just detached ourselves from the wider community, especially if you live in a very urban life, moved away from the villages. Mm-hmm. Strong that community connection can be, and it's so important for our mental health. And in the last two years with isolation, it was just evident yeah. how people did feel unsafe. Like who's got your back pretty much isn't it that's the question who has your back who can we how can we go through this 
with someone beside us that's it makes it so much easier so what you're talking about there is emotional regulation and we can do it by ourselves right this is uh, you know when we get upset we can say like my internal voice might be okay so it's okay that was a bit scary what that person said there but it's okay I, it's, you're all right and you know there's lots of people that love you and that'll be me doing emotional regulation for myself right so i can do it for myself and it's important that we can do it for ourselves but it does take a certain metabolic load. And if we, we have someone who can share things with, like if I ring up a friend and say, oh, somebody said this to me and it was, so, and they go, oh my gosh, are you okay? That just feels so hurtful. You go, yes. That validation. <laughs> yes. Great. It's such yes. a relief. It's yes. such a relief. Because we are designed like components. We are tribal and we are components of a tribe. So if we can say, Am I still okay here? This is what happened. They go, oh my gosh, that hurts. And yeah, you're okay. Yeah. Then we feel it doesn't take as much metabolic load, right? And now it, depending on what happened as a child, it depends how good you are at managing that metabolic load. Like I, that little script I said in my head before that I'm okay, Sue, those sorts of things. I can hear my mom saying those things to me, mm -hmm. right? So there's my modeling, right? Or if I fall, if I hurt myself, it's like, okay, you've got a nasty cut, but it's going to be okay. Just need to band it, whatever, right? But if I don't have that model, if I had, say, for example, neglectful parents where I was left to my own devices way too much, then when somebody says that, I go, no idea what to do with that. No idea. And I may end up being, for that very reason, a withdrawer who goes, don't know what to do with that. That really hurt. That really hurt. Really hurt. I don't know what to do with that. I don't know how to make sense of it. I'll just shut it down. Put it in the box where I never open up, right? Yeah. So how the all these things impact on us. And I, it's really important that we understand that that, like that neglect that comes from childhood causes trauma. That trauma comes through you. It's not you. And it's not somebody else. If someone's, you know, pushing you back and or being narky with you and it's their trauma speaking, it's the trauma. It's not them. It's like a virus, right? We catch a virus. Do you have a responsibility to try not to sneeze on everybody? I'll give you that, right? But it's also not your fault that you've got the virus and not your fault that other people get affected by it at times. Wise yeah. words, Sue. We could chat about this for hours, but I want to sort of end this podcast with a story. And Sue, so you're a mother, partner, grandmother, daughter, professional. You run your own business. And of course, you're a woman as well. And you juggle all these hats. And you've got this amazing experience behind you. So I would love for you to share a story where you found that to be overwhelming or challenging and what strategies you use to help yourself. Yeah. And that is such a question because we weren't taught how to navigate this world or be all these things. And Brené Brown talks about the shame for women is that they feel the need to be doing everything, doing it well, and never breaking a sweat. And that's very much where I used to be in my younger days. I was, you know, like you say, a businesswoman and I was bringing up children and uh, trying to be a good partner, a good mother, a daughter, a good everything. <laughs> it was such a lot. And no one batted an eyelid. No one said, gee, this is tough. We all just kept on going with it. And so that in itself invalidates your experience. It's like, what's wrong with me? How come I'm struggling? How come I'm losing the plot and, you know, yelling at my kids more than I should be or whatever? But you're right. There was a certain point that I got to and I went, this is just too much. And that was with the help of therapy. 
And I started to learn that I needed to look after my own needs. I was getting lost in the mix of trying to be everything to everybody else. So I needed to go, what about Sue? What does Sue need? So I started putting up some boundaries and I started asking myself the question, if I don't do this, if I drop this task and and let this one go, what's the worst that will happen? And that was a bit tricky. That was hard because it felt to me like, I may not be doing the right thing here. I may disappoint someone. But I knew I was also killing myself. My health was starting to suffer. And I went, okay, the worst that'll happen is they'll get disappointed. They'll live. They'll get over it, right? And there was one particular day when I went, that's it. Actually, I, I said to my husband and three sons, I said, that's it. I need to find myself. And I hopped in the car and I drove for about two hours, which was very unlike me. I'm not a big driver. But I drove for two hours, went to a beach, and I spent all day at the beach just going, what do I want? Who am I in all this? And all this other stuff came up, but I had to just sort through it. And in the end, I thought, what is it I need? And I thought, I need something that's for me, just for me, just not because I have to or I should, just because I want to. And uh, the the upshot of that was I um, found a, because um, I was always fascinated by movement, the body movement. And I found a group that did uh, Middle Eastern dance and I liked some of the music. I loved music and I loved the movement. I went, I'll try that. Best thing ever. It was just so much fun. The women were fun. We were laughing and just helping each other with costuming and and just nobody's life depended on it. It was just for us women and it was just about fun and connection. And it built so many good bonds. I'm still friends with those people, what, 20 years later. Yeah, those relationships fed me as as the relationships build. There were times when I went through struggles in life, but I had more people to share and get my metabolic load, right? And there'd be the person in the group who goes, well, that person's a right bastard. (laughs) But there was also a lot of compassion and uh, a lot of love and a lot of, lot of fun and laughter and that fun. It's so bonding. So yeah, looking at for what your needs are and saying, what about me? Don't lose yourself because this journey is a sacred journey. And the most important person you have to look after in this sacred journey is yourself. So check in with you. Don't forget you. Don't put yourself last on the list. Amazing. Thank you so much, Sue. I think that was a fabulously way to end this podcast. Wise words. Thank you so much, Sue, and hope to have you back on. I think there's so many other topics we need to chat about. (laughs) Absolutely. It's been an absolute pleasure as always chatting with you, Shami, and I'll look forward to doing more in the future. Excellent. Thank you. Bye. Remember that this is general advice only. Please see your healthcare professional for more information. So what's your take-home message today? Remember, it's all about progress and not perfection. Curious to learn more? Visit usawa.com.au and click on the Usawa Learning Platform, which is packed with educational videos, including the six-week stress-free challenge. Enjoy the journey.